Okay, two two streams in a week. I'm I'm sort of back on the horse. I think Buzzwrecker made a joke about it. Uh, where was it? Where was it? Um, we spent so long trying to convince Maren Strawberry to stream more regularly. We tried everything, but in the end, it took cold hard cash. Yep, those super chats, those two euros. You know, they'll uh, they'll get me going every time. Um, so guys, I'm going to try and star questions. Um. Like, I might not get to every question. There's already a few there. I'm going to try and click the star on them so I can come back to them um, as you know, towards the end. Obviously, anything that's super chatted, I'm going to read. Um, okay, I'm just starring some questions here as I start. Um, there actually hasn't been much, uh, much chaos this week on the farm, so I've got no chaotic farm updates. Um, everything's going very well. Um, hey, Liz, how's it going? Hey, Athanasius. Hey, Little Omain, Dr. Crispy, Rua, Mario's here. It's great to see everybody. So, um, we're gonna have, um, I was hoping we'd get Posh Redneck in, but he is too busy, um, doing his, uh, doing his renovations in his house. So he's told me he won't be able to get in, but you never know. You never know. He might pop in later, and obviously, that'd be excellent. Um, but, uh, what I'll do is I'm gonna silence this. Um, yeah, just keep your questions coming. I'll try and keep up with them. Obviously, I'm going to be focusing um, on E. Michael Jones. So, without further ado, Dr. Jones, how are you? Good. Good to be here. It's great to be great to have you on the show. <clears throat> I was saying to you just before uh, just before we went live there that um, all my moderators are big fans, but uh, that sounds like a backhanded compliment. Like I'm not a fan. <laughs> but um but really they are really they, um I, my I, my little moderate moderator chat that i have they're all sending me um streams to watch so i've watched five or six of your streams today because they keep saying you have to watch this one you have to watch this one so i accept all compliments even backhanded compliments <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. um, so um so clearly there's um there's there's all sorts of things going on in the news at the moment which are uh particularly pertinent uh, when you're talking to you. But um, I wanted to start off with some sort of basic things and things that you can kind of help me with and that I'd just like to kind of cover before we, before we get into that stuff. Yes. And starting with the very basic, the, uh, the question you'll, you'll always get asked. I'd love um, a, a description of uh, this term that we hear all the time, the Logos. And because we hear it, especially in the realm of, of the internet that I'm in, we hear it all the time, often used incorrectly, um, sometimes used correctly. But I'd love to get a good description of how that, what that term really means within the Christian sphere. Okay, it means word, uh, and that's the way it's translated into English. Uh, but it means much more than that. It's you could say that Greek philosophy was basically based around the word logos. And all of Greek philosophy was for hundreds of years was basically coming up to the understanding of what that meant and all of its ramifications. So it means uh, discourse. <coughs> it means the order of something, the order of the universe. <coughs> all of these things are bound up with the word, which is why I felt that I had to use it <coughs> when I wrote my book called Logos Rising. It came into uh, Christian parlance when St. John wrote his gospel in Greek. Not only did he write it in Greek, but the first sentence was, in arche, in ha logos. In the beginning, there was logos. 
Kai Logos and Prostheon, and Logos was with God, Kai Logos and Theos, and Logos is God. Now, that was a, a, a turning point in human history uh, because what it did was you, it clarified the whole situation uh, of Greek philosophy in the light of the Hebrew scriptures. Specifically, it's clarified the idea of the beginning. Neither Plato nor Aristotle understood that there, the world was created in time. They thought it was eternal. They didn't know that, and so it, it situated that in the that philosophical attempt in the light of the Greek, the Hebrew understanding of history. It brought the Hebrews an understanding of philosophy. So the Greeks now understand history in addition to philosophy, and the Hebrews now understand philosophy in addition to history, and that's known as Christianity. And that's what changed the world, the world that we live in. Uh, as Europeans, uh, I am a European, displaced European. I'm half Irish and half German, so I'm biracial and, and have multiple personality disorder as a result of that. Yeah. But that's, that's the world that we live in, and that's all, in a sense, uh, a creation of this word logos. Okay. Yeah, I heard yesterday that um, you like to do things very particularly, but tomorrow. That but tomorrow, that's right. That was the, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's what my wife says about me and the way I take care of the house. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm an Irishman, um, I'm, I'm a, an Irishman domestically and a, and a German philosophically. Ah, very good. Um, so yeah, I know that you um, have involved yourself somewhat in um, Irish culture. I know, I think you, I think you, you, you involve yourself in trad, in trad music anyway. I played, I played, I uh, played Irish music for. Uh, 16 years every Monday night at the Irish pub in South Bend, Indiana, Fiddler's Hearth. It was part of a, an ethnic revival that began right around, around the year 2000, uh, uh, an attempt on a lot of Catholics here to rediscover their eth ethnic identity, even though ethnicity, Catholicism is your ethnic identity over here, but discovering Irish roots, uh, a protest against amplified music, it was a lot of interesting things coming together. Yeah, so that's an interesting thing. Before we get into sort of the, um, the meat of what's of what's going on in the media, I'd like to premise the whole conversation with this, being an Irish streamer with that Irish ethnic identity, and I'd like to get your opinions on it. Which is the, um, it's it's largely gone now from society. That's as we've secular secularized post the year two thousand and post. Uh, the issues with the Catholic Church, right? We've become quite secular. But in my childhood, um, which would have been in the late 80s and the 90s, in what we call primary school, what the Americans would call elementary school, it would have been very common for people to associate with the fact that they were Catholic. Catholic meant something. It meant to be ethnically Irish, right? And there were right. people whose, whose families were Irish in the way that we think of it now, more in terms of DNA and how long you've been here, who were Protestant, who would have been seen as somewhat removed. Um, so there was, a, there was a child who lived on my road who was my friend, and he was a Protestant, and he was always the Protestant one. It was like kind of like having your foreign friend almost. And um, people would ask you if you made new friends, if you went to the beach and you met a group of guys, they'd say Catholic or Protestant. And it didn't necessarily mean that you were from a religious family. I was from an atheistic family. Right. But I was a Catholic. But I was a Catholic, ethnically. Right, right. So there, there's a story of a of an Irishman in Belfast, and he's 
coming home from the pub. He's had too much to drink. It's dark. And he's accosted by a group of men. And he can't tell whether it's the Royal Ulster Constabulary or the IRA. And so they ask him, are you a Protestant or a Catholic? And the Irishman looks at him and says, I'm an atheist. And then they say, are, are you a Catholic atheist or a Protestant atheist? So <laughs> yeah, exactly. you're talking about uh, an ethnic identity that is based on religion. This is not unusual. Yugoslavia was a country where your ethnic identity was based on religion. You were Serb, Croat, or Muslim. In the United States, you have the same thing. After three generations, your ethnic identity is Protestant, Catholic, or Jew. That is the reality of the situation, and that is the reality of, of Europe. Now, that is all of Europe. And then there came the Reformation. Then you had this division. Okay, but uh, these, these, things, these things have, have remained. They remain as part of your uh, identity. And the crucial moment comes with the French Revolution. And suddenly you've got a Catholic country with a new explanation, a kind of secular explanation. And okay, let's see how that goes. Okay, it starts off with liberty, fraternity, equality, and then the streets are running with blood as the revolution turns on itself and chops off Robespierre's head and all these other people's head. 100 years later, the Civiltà Cattolica, which is the official magazine of the Vatican, wrote a three-part series on the Jewish question in Europe. It was about, let's say, let's examine what happened in France 100 years later, and they came to an absolutely stunning conclusion. Basically, any country that turns away from Catholicism will end up being ruled by Jews. You're stunned. I'm stunned. But it's true. And this is true now of Ireland. To the extent that Ireland turns away from its religious identity, you will be ruled by Jews. Now, they may call themselves Google, or they may call themselves Pfizer, or they may call themselves homosexuals, or whatever these front groups are, but the net result is going to be you're going to be ruled by Jews. How do I know that? Because my friend Gemma O'Doherty just got a letter from the Garda saying that uh, we examined your uh, newspaper and we think you have uh, your newspaper is anti-semitic this is a sign you're being ruled by jews they control the speech who knew this no one knew this because yeah. ireland was way behind the curve when it came to secularization you mentioned the 80s during the 1980s ireland was a place where abortion was unconstitutional not only yeah. illegal, but unconstitutional. And over that period, this rapid period of change, all came about because of a concerted attempt to rob the Irish of their Catholic identity. Because they knew that if they could do that, they could rule them, turn them into a bunch of docile sex robots, roads, wage slaves, and debtors. And that's the, that's the result of what happened to Ireland where they turned away from the Catholic faith. I have talked about that in a previous stream, just how kind of surprising it, it, it is in the specific period of time that I've been alive for to watch how we went from a country where it would have been, I've, it would have been very normal to be pro-life 
in my childhood and everybody seemed to be but um very very quickly over the course of it felt like three or four years we went from that to like 80 percent of people voted uh voted for abortion in the uh in the referendum and that was only when i think that was 2018 so it's quite yeah. recent no very very recent very recent compared to the united states uh, we didn't vote it, for it. We, it was imposed on us uh, uh, by the Supreme Court. 50 years later, it gets overturned. Roe versus Wade gets overturned, and 400 Jewish organizations come out and say abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. Why did you tell us that 50 years ago? 50 years ago, well, it was Jews who were doing it. It was Bernard Nathanson and Larry Later, two Jews from New York City, that basically opened the door but no one ever talked that way back then. They would say, the New York Times would say, uh, Bernard Nathanson, he's a gynecologist. But yeah. the guy who's opposing him is a Catholic. Well, no, this was a Catholic Jewish battle. It's what it is today. And yet they disguise it under this veil of secularism to smuggle it in. And then only 50 years later did they tell us abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. If we had known it then, we'd say, wait a minute, you can't impose your religion on me. I'm a Catholic. This is a Jewish sacrament. Okay, that's bad. It says a lot about Jews, but that's your religion. Okay, you want that, but don't impose it on me. That's the what that's what happened, but it took us fifty years to figure that out. I see. Um as a as a side note, I don't suppose you kept up with the, the official Irish statistics um on how many abortions we had in the first year of uh, after the after the referendum. No, I didn't. Six thousand six hundred and sixty six is the official number that they put out um in the papers. Um you can't so, afford you can't afford one abortion. You are in no. a, a life and death demographic struggle right now that is being orchestrated by your rulers, the who are the lackeys of the oligarchs. There are six million Irishmen out there. That's not a lot of people. You're living on an island, which means it's not a lot of ground, and you're being flooded by immigrants now in a deliberate mm -hmm. attempt to basically rob you of your own country. Uh, you can't afford any abortions. Uh, other, and this is on top of, completely aside from the fact that it's a heinous crime and those women who do that will be marked for the rest of their lives by what they did. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, so, let me think about this now. So, in your, um, in your, would you, would you agree then, obviously, that this is just, let still on the abortion topic it's sort of like it's a continuation of the sexual liberation it's it's all about that same that same idea which is that to make us more docile and controllable by by by, by flooding us with our passions and it's necessary for that reason right you can't have sexual liberation without abortion it's just impossible it's always going to be the backup but you know okay so that's the standard explanation but what happens what happens to you when you have an abortion? I was there in Philadelphia as a teenager going to a Catholic high school, private uh, prep school outside of Philadelphia in, from 1962 to 1966. And all of the watching all of those girls Catholic high schools around, suddenly the, the nuns start preaching feminism. And then the girls start acting out and then the girls 
uh, once some of them get pregnant and they start having abortions. And what happens then is uh, you become a Jew. That's what happens if you don't repent. Now, why do I say that? Well, because there's an idea, there's a, a movement waiting for you. It's called feminism. It was created by Jews. It's an extension of Marxism, except it's not class conflict, it's sexual conflict, okay? And uh, once you join that movement, you join that movement because of guilt, because of the guilt you feel because you killed your child. And then they will mobilize that guilt into a political movement, and it will become part of the Democratic Party. And that's what it is today. And so you have a state like Pennsylvania, which is where I grew up, you have uh, a Jew running for a governor whose only qualification is that he persecuted the Catholic Church. Nobody knew who he was until he started going after priests, pedophiles. Three, he's attorney general there in Harrisburg. 300 pictures of priests putting up in the newspaper who were accused. Well, wait a minute. I thought you were innocent until you were proven guilty. One indictment. 300 piece, if this is an attack on the Catholic Church, then nothing is. And he sends a signal out to those guilt-ridden Catholic ladies who are now feminists, and they put a Jew, they elect a Jew as governor of Pennsylvania. There are enough Jews okay. in Pennsylvania to elect a dog catcher, but you mobilize those Catholic ladies, uh, you, you play on their guilt, and then you have these people ruling you with an iron rod, and I'm telling you the same thing will happen to Ireland. The oligarchs will rule you with an iron rod. You won't be able to say anything without their permission, which is exactly the position that Gemma O'Doherty is in right now. A courageous lady who is standing up for the, for the Irish people and defending their right to express themselves in public against something that is obviously a Jewish orchestration of thought control. Okay. Um, I'm starting to become very aware that I might not be able to that this stream is going to get my channel ahead, my channel taken down. But we're going to try and keep going anyway. I don't know what I'm going to do after the live stream. I'll, I'll see if I'll, I'll I'll ask some more expert people about whether or not I can keep it up at this stage. But I'll try. Um, so um, clearly, uh, the, uh, I can I can if I can address that. I know I'm in America. I know I'm in a different country. But uh, the ADL was thought they'd killed me. 15 years ago when I published the Jewish revolutionary spirit. So it, they're, they're not, they're not all powerful. I guarantee you. And this is the moment when across the board, the world is pushing back. The world is pushing back against Jewish arrogance and Jewish tyranny. And we can talk about that if you want to. Okay. Well, that's actually one question. So since we've, since we've come into that talk, the topic of, um, of Judaism, um, one person in the chat has popped up a few times uh, saying, wasn't Jesus Jewish and this kind of thing. So I think, the, I think we need to clarify that it isn't a specific hatred of the ethnic group Jews, right? Um, there's no, hate, there's no hatred here whatsoever. We're, we're yes. just, we're talking, first of all, we have to clarify what the word Jew means. Uh, because that is a source of confusion. So if you go, if you go, obviously there was a conflict at the time of Jesus Christ. Okay, Jesus Christ is the Messiah who comes to save the Jewish people, who are the God's chosen people, and some of those people accept him as the Messiah, and some of those people want to kill him. 
So there's no blanket DNA explanation of what's going on here. It's a purely theological explanation. Um, and if you go to the Gospel of St. John, which I've already mentioned, there we'll find a passage where it says, the parents of the man born blind refused to speak out of fear of the Jews because the Jews threatened to expel from the synagogue anyone who said that Jesus was the Messiah. Well, what's that mean? Everybody in that gospel is a Jew. It's only about Jews. So why are they saying uh, the, they're, they're fear afraid of the Jews? Because Jew at that point took on a special meaning. It means someone who rejects Jesus Christ. It is someone who rejects the Logos incarnate, who rejects the idea of Logos as the order of the universe. And when you do that, you become a revolutionary, and that's what the Jews have been ever since that defining moment in history. When some of the Jews accepted Jesus Christ, they're called Christians. And the Jews who rejected them are called Jews. And Jesus Christ makes it clear that it's the Jews who accept him who are the children of Moses, and the Jews who reject him cannot call themselves that, or the children, the children of Moses. They, they can't do that because you have to accept Christ in order to be a child of Moses. That's the big conflict. That's the, the fundamental armature of human history. It's the battle between Logos and anti-Logos. So uh, Ortho Eric says Christ is inevitable. So that kind of, and based on what you were saying, that kind of reminds me, that's that whole conception that you have of history. I heard you talking with, I think it's actually an interview from four, four years ago. You were speaking with a with a, a two other Americans. One of them was kind of pushing back on you about your view of history, and uh, I'd love to get into that. How how you view the um, the the happenings of history, and how whilst you can point out something's evil, you, that you can know it's part of the plan, and that, that right ultimately Christ is inevitable. Right. So once so as I said, Plato and Aristotle didn't know that there was a creation. They didn't understand time. They didn't understand that God was the Lord of history as well as uh, uh, space. And so once uh, people knew that history had a beginning, a middle, and an end, history had had uh, purpose. And it was leading somewhere. And it was under God's control. So as soon as you say it's under God's control, someone's going to say, well, what about evil? And that's where the Bible comes in. And I'm talking specifically about the story of Joseph which is the end of the book of Genesis, which means this is the real summation of what this book is about. Begins within the beginning, God created heaven and earth, which is a revolutionary understanding. Plato didn't understand that, Aristotle didn't understand that. And it ends with Joseph talking to his brothers. Joseph, those brothers sold him into slavery. That's evil. But he ended up in Egypt and he rose to the top and suddenly he's in charge of the granary. And at this point, his brothers are starving in in uh, in Canaan, in, in uh, the, la uh, the land of Israel. And so they come to him, and he finally reveals himself. And at the end of the book, he tries to, he's going to make, I'm going to make this clear to you people. The evil that you intended to do to me has been turned by God's power into good. That is the meaning of history. And that is the answer to the people who say, bring up the problem of evil. God, if he gave man free will, he had to accept evil, the existence of evil, because you can choose evil. The Irish people have chosen evil, okay? But that's not the end of the story, 
because God can take evil and turn it into good, and that's the story of human history. And that's why I'm an optimist, and that's why I said Logos is rising, because God is in charge, and all of the evil in the world can't thwart God's plan, because if it could, he wouldn't be God. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I I heard you in the same stream mentioning um, is it a parable? It's the story of the 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 man renting his land to people who start to ruin it. Right. Those people there. It's called the parable of the wicked tenants, or the parable of the wicked husbandman. But basically, God is the owner of the vineyard. But he needs people to work on it, so he rents it out, and then he decides it's time to take it back, and he sends messengers, and they kill the messengers. And then he says, well, if they kill them, uh, I will send my son, and they kill the son. Well, it's obvious what's going on now. The messengers are the prophet, and the son is Jesus Christ, and they killed him. And so they have lost their right to be the tenants. No one, they were not the owners. None of these people are the owners of the vineyard. They're the tenants. And the tenants is the metaphor for God's chosen people. You don't have that as a right. You don't have some type of special DNA that makes you a, a superman, you know, or anything like that. God granted you this favor and he can take it back. And that's exactly what he did when you killed his son. And now everyone, uh, the whole world, it's open to that salvation that was only uh, for the Hebrews. And they access it through baptism. And uh, to, just to show that God doesn't hold grudges, he said that the Jews can be saved too, but they have to be baptized now because everybody's got to be baptized. And if you're saying Jews can be saved without baptism, you should get a, you should probably, you're probably teaching theology at Notre Dame University, uh, uh, but you're not uh, proclaiming the gospel. Yeah, so this is an important part about your, um, what, what, we, what we touched on at the beginning which is this concept, this much more modern concept of what that ethnicity means, and that is that it's based on something to do with your genetics or your DNA or your bloodline, which is how um, how people are treating the being God's chosen people, like it's a bloodline or an ethnic identity. Where, whereas the older and much more common understanding of what your, your ethnicity was, was your religion, your cultural practices, and where you were born. Or your language. Language is extremely important when it comes to ethnicity. And my good friend Terry O'Reardon teaches Irish in Montana, and he feels that the great catastrophe in Ireland was the, uh, the removal of the Irish language. It had a devastating effect on uh, Irish solidarity and uh, Irish identity. Uh, but, you know, uh, but I, look, I grew up in the same situation. Okay, my, my Irish, the Irish side of the family thought it was a great advantage that when they came over here, they all spoke English because they didn't have to learn it and they had an advantage over the Polacks and the Italians and the Germans and, and those people. But in Ireland, uh, you, you probably did lose some type of ethnic identity by doing that. And because you lost that kind of ethnic identity, Catholicism is more important as an identity factor exactly for the same reason in America. Because in America, after three generations, everybody loses their native language, the language they brought, their ancestors brought with them. And that means religion is the source of your identity. Protestant, Catholic, Jew. So it becomes more important in this situation, more important for Ireland than it would be for uh, Germany, which is also in a bad situation, but they've still retained their, their, the German language. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, Randy Bernays, uh 
puts up if you want to know who controls you look at who you're not allowed to criticize um that's yeah. exactly the situation with Gemma. And we all, we all, we Irishmen, I'm a demi-Irishman, but we demi-Irishmen have to support Gemma at this point. She's, she's fighting for the rest of us. She's certainly fighting for the right of free speech in Ireland, and we have, we have a duty to support her. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and on that note, guys, I would, I, obviously, I want to have this stream up, so somebody's going to have to give me some advice on what I do here. <laughs> to, to, do I have to beep out the word Jew or something like this? Because I want to, I want to keep this conversation flowing, but uh, I don't want to get my channel taken down. So um, now, uh, who's Gemma? Oh, Gemma O'Darty is. Uh, I have a lot of American listeners. Gemma O'Darty is a uh, like a journalist from Ireland who has had all her her YouTube channel taken down, and uh, now she has her own website and she streams from there. But she was a journalist for a long time, and she calls out all kinds of um, issues to do with the New World Order and uh, and modernization and everything else. Yeah, Gemma O'Darty. And, uh, yeah, she gets all kinds of trouble, like uh, mass immigration, everything. She points out everything. And she ran as a politician um, but didn't didn't get in, in my area, actually. Um, but that's Gemma O'Darty. And she is friends with um, E. Michael Jones and also with John Waters, who I've had on my show previously. And I asked him to come on with you to, with I asked him to come on with you today, but he said he couldn't make it because he's at a meeting. And uh, I thought he might be able to pop in for a surprise. Chat, yeah, we met but. we met in uh, in at Notre Dame. He came over and gave a speech at Notre Dame. We had time to sit down and talk uh, about the situation, about his situation. You know, uh, a writer. He's kind of plagued with kind of uh, nostalgia. He wrote a book called I always get it wrong, but it's like Give Us Our Old Roads Back. Where's the picture of him? They're all poor. There's his father with some junk car. He's got all these kids sitting on the car. Uh, the 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 nostalgia that comes about when you gain the world and you lose your soul, which is apparently what's happened to Ireland now. Fast roads, but no no point in going anywhere because you've lost your sense of direction, your sense of orientation. Yeah, that was the trick that was played on Ireland. Was kind of this uh, this facade of getting gifts from from abroad you know like the uh, the eu helping with roads and meanwhile uh, far more money than than was given towards our roads was flowing out through uh, lost forestry and fishing and everything else it's yeah. uh, this kind of this kind of facade of that we should be feeling guilty and and grateful uh, to the powers that be rather than um, feeling like we've had a lot stolen from us that's right um that's right and and in a sense everyone is in this situation i mean i live in a, a conquered province called indiana you know, which got disenfranchised. The Midwest got disenfranchised during the battle over uh, entry into World War II. We all live in conquered provinces now, so we're going to have to accept that fact and act accordingly. Um, bit more of an inside joke, but well, Emmanuel says three ninety nine, and you get to camp on a backyard. No wait, wrong stream. Yes, but if you actually look at the uh, join section underneath this uh, stream, you'll see I do have a three ninety nine option where what you get for that is you can camp on any land that I buy specifically with your money, not with anybody else's. So that's the, that's the deal there. Um, anything you said that would need to be taken out if you ever need to, there is an app. Okay. Thank you, Tencel TQ. Um, so clearly, clearly we're in a time now where your views on your anti-war views and how that pertains to, um, to Catholicism and Christianity in general are really 
at the forefront. They were they were four years ago as well, but at the moment they're this is big news. So, what do you think is happening at this stage? What do you think? What how do you think we're going to see things progress? Okay, so you're talking about the uh, the Gaza, the um, the Gaza, the uh, what's going on in Israel and Gaza. Yeah. And the... So Ga- about a week ago, uh, Hamas broke out of the of Gaza and attacked a number of military bases and so on and so forth, took hostages, and then there's been a bad information battle ever since about what exactly happened. So they immediately said that they were killing people. Now stories are coming out to say that that uh, concert, that it was the Israelis who killed the concert goers because they were indiscriminate in their use of firepower. They're firing tank rounds into crowds of people, you know, not caring one way or the other whether they, they were killed. So at this point, uh, I think personally that Netanyahu let it happen. The Egyptians said that they knew, they, they'd let him know that something was brewing. I think he let it happen because I think he was preparing for the counterattack where he wanted to engage in the total ethnic cleansing of Gaza. By the way, the Irish are some of the most stout defenders of the Palestinians. I met Claire Daly and Mick, Mick Wallace when I was in Tehran, and they have been steadfast in their support of the Palestinian people. So God bless the Irish in that regard. I had conversations with them that is one of those things that actually separates us culturally from the americans for sure despite how how um how the american culture is kind of on us all the time because of the media we it's very hard for us to get into the headspace when you listen to americans talking about what's going on over there like i saw you being i saw you being interviewed by a girl um who kind of questioned you on the israel thing and it's almost like part of the indoctrination of growing up in America that you have to love and protect Israel. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. It's nonstop, 24-7. You're being pounded over the head by Israeli propaganda uh, because Jews control Hollywood. And I did a whole story about the Catholic-Jewish battle over Hollywood and how they basically took, they broke the Catholic control. The Irish Catholics took control of this culture war in the 1930s and imposed the production co on on Hollywood. These were Irish Catholics. A a guy named Joe Breen, who went to the same college I went to, uh, said that these people are, all they think about is sex and money. They're the scum of the earth. They're Eastern European Jews, and nobody should have this power, a monopoly power over the film fair of America, uh, and least of all this group of people. And he was right. And for 31 years, they held control and no nudity, none of this type of stuff, because he understood intuitively. I don't think he understood it the way I understand it, that if the if you allow these people to 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 pollute the media, they will take it over and they will control you. They'll turn you into a sex robot. And that's exactly what happened. The Jews broke the code in 1965 with a Holocaust porn film called The, the Porn Broker. And the Catholics have been on the back foot ever since. They have never regained their political power because they allowed the Jews to corrupt the sexual morality of the American people. Exactly the same thing happened in Germany. Exactly the same thing. It happened right around the same time. There was an international effort to do this. And that's that's the problem here, that you got this group of people taking over the public mind. Tell me again, I've lost some train of thought. Tell me again what your question was. We were talking about something specific here. 
Yeah, we had. I had asked you more to do with uh, how you see things going in uh, in in Gaza, but then I. Okay, let me um, let me go back. Let me go back to that. So basically, the Israelis have total control of the propaganda barrage, and they start telling uh, 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 everyone that. Uh, that uh, they're going to drop bombs, they drop the bombs, and then they, they say there's going to be a ground invasion. Now, I said, I predicted that it's not going to happen. And I said that because of what happened in 2005, uh, 2006, when the uh, IDF went into southern Lebanon, and they got 500 yards in and Hezbollah stopped them because they were in tunnels and they had rockets that could destroy the tanks. That's the same situation in Gaza. It's even worse than Gaza because there's more densely populated, more tunnels, and less maneuverability for a tank. And I said, I don't think Israelis are willing to die for their country. They want Americans to die for their country. And at that point, everybody's waiting. Uh, Hezbollah is waiting on the northern border. Iran says, if you go in, you're crossing a red line, and this will mean World War III. Everybody's waiting. The Israelis shut off water, food, medicine, everything. And at that moment, God intervenes, and they have this torrential downpour. And the, the Palestinians are saying, Allah gave us water when the Israelis took it off. I think it affected the, uh, the uh, tunnels. It affected, and so the ground invasion did not happen. I said it wasn't going to happen. It didn't happen. And then Biden shows up. He, they, uh, uh, and then they do this bombing. They bomb the hospital, and then they try to blame that on Hamas, uh, trying to get put Biden in a box where you've got to support us. And Biden, in his dotage, says, uh, we're going to bring in humanitarian aid. Now, that's not Biden. Biden can hardly find his way out of a room. I'm saying that there's a rebellion in the State Department, in the deep state, against the Jewish control of our foreign policy. I said it before when David Ignatius wrote an article in the Washington Post. He's a mouthpiece for the CIA. He's heading in that direction. And then today, State Department official resigns for exactly this reason, in protest over the way the war is being handled in, in uh, Gaza, a protest against the war crimes that the, the Israelis are committing. And so I'm saying it's now heading in the other direction. There's not going to be an invasion. The adults, I think, finally stood up in the room in America and said, we can't, yeah. let, the, we can't let these Jews determine our foreign policy. I said before, this is not the first time this happened. In 1947, the plan was the Morgenthau plan, a Jew who was the Secretary of State, and his plan was to starve the Germans to death. And at that point, courageous, heroic figures like Herbert Hoover, the former president, stood up and said, we cannot allow Semitic vengeance to be the basis of our foreign policy. And they threw out the Morgenthau plan and they brought, the, brought in the Marshall Plan. I'm saying, I think we're at this turning point right now in the United States of America. They've gone too far. There are just too many people out there that are too angry about the Israelis with their high moral or riding their high moral horse after dropping bombs on a hospital and killing 500 women and children. Too far. And as I said, again, to their credit, Claire Daly and, and Mick Wallace have been courageous in standing up to, to the Israelis. I only wish they understood 
that there are other Jews who are not Israelis and they're in favor of abortion, which is also a direct attack on, on Ireland. I mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, just to say thank you to Well Emmanuel. He's a new member. Guys, everyone should be a member. Um, so the, yeah, so actually I found it really, um, what's the word for it? Um, not satisfying, but um, relieving when I heard your your kind of straight to the point opinions on um, on how people should be approaching and feeling about what's going on over there. Because when you when you listen to people, because I was feeling the same way. When you when you listen to people on the internet, you have Ben Shapiro on one side telling you that everything that the Israel is doing right now is absolutely perfect, and that if you don't believe that, that that means you just don't understand history. On the other side. You have uh, people telling you that um, it's perfectly, like you know, that we should only be on the Palestinian side and we, sh- and we should be perfectly fine with any murders that did happen on their soil. And I was sort of feeling like we should, I, what's happening to Palestine right now is absolutely abhorrent. And also the murder of the people in the towns on the border of Israel was uh, was pretty awful as well. And um, it's all it's all something that we should we should we should put under the the blanket of evil. Well, I mean, what, what are we what are we talking about? We're talking about logos. We need logos here. Practical reason is logos applied to behavior. It's called morality, or it's called law, or it's called justice, and that's what we have to apply in this situation. And there are rules for conducting law war, the just war theory. And one of the rules is you cannot indiscriminately target uh, non-combatants. Women and children. Well, the Jews don't believe that. The Israelis don't follow that rule. They are beyond the pale of civilized behavior. And we have to have the courage to, to call, call them out on that and say, no, you don't, get a, you don't get a pass simply because you're Jewish. That doesn't mean you, you don't get, have to follow the moral law. And so what happens is when you have people like uh, Ben Shapiro coming out, Ben, you're not a conservative. That was a cover. You're a flaming Jewish nationalist who feels that anything that Jews do is justified with no uh, recognition that we're all under the moral law and have to obey the moral law. So you're not a conservative. If that's not part of conservatism, then the word has no meaning. Exactly. And um, one thing I didn't know, and this probably shows more to do with my ignorance than anything else, but one thing I hadn't engaged with was... um, how much of the uh, the Hamas uh, um, infrastructure is all underground? So there's um, so the the excuse of they hide they hide uh, among their own civilians and they hide among their own populace. So therefore we we can't help but have some collateral damage. Really doesn't fly when no. you know when you know that none of these missiles are going to hit uh, their underground no. bunkers anyway. There are no military targets above ground in Gaza. Gaza is the most densely populated piece of land on the face of the earth. I mean, maybe the Vatican, I don't know. But certainly for as a real group of people, it's the most densely populated place on the face of the earth, which means if you drop a bomb there, you're, you're killing civilians. So every single bomb dropped on Gaza is a war crime because there are no military installations above ground. It's all in tunnels. And the Israelis, I'm saying that the Israeli soldiers won't die for Israel. They're not going to go into the tunnel. They want Americans to go into the tunnel. That's, and their, their, their cowardice makes them rely on dropping bombs, and you cannot win a war by dropping bombs, period. The proof of that was what happened in North Korea. The United States leveled every single 
structure. And they fought to a standoff because they went underground and you cannot drop a bomb and uh, destroy those underground facilities. Now that, uh, again, what I heard was that the United States was sending bunker buster bombs. I am going to say what I think happened. I think the Israelis got one of them and they dropped it on the hospital. And then they immediately said, oh, the, the Hamas did it as a way of basically neutralizing Joe Biden and the American State Department when they come over here to say, no, there's got to be a ceasefire and you're going to have to make concessions and there's going to be no ground evasion. I think that's what was going on there. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, let's get into why you think it is that um, that Israelis, uh, Israeli soldiers aren't willing to die for Israel. Because uh, this isn't me. This is there uh, a general by the name of Brick, uh, Israeli general, retired general. He just says that the, there's too much division. The people don't believe. They don't have that kind of messianic feeling that the first generation had. That they were, you know, somehow on the cutting edge of history. They become decadent. Uh, Tel Aviv is the world's gay capital it's the gayest city in the world i've heard i've never been there you put all these things together uh, and you have a group of people who really don't believe in the founding myths of the country if you don't believe in it you don't want to die for it that's that simple and the fact of the matter is that they didn't go into the tunnels in in lebanon and they're not going to go into the tunnels here either i think because there's there's an added dimension here that i just brought up in the article i just wrote and this is Ehud Barak, who's a former prime minister, is haunted by an idea, and the idea is basically no Jewish kingdom has lasted more than 80 years. This is the kind of thinking that goes all the way back to the Hebrew scriptures. I, th- I don't think they can get away from it. They understand that God is in charge of history. They understand that they have to behave in a certain way. They know they're not behaving in the way that they should. They are consumed with guilt over their behavior, and they should be. You know, that's good. Uh, the, the Jews have had a guilt problem for 2,000 years because the Roman Emperor Titus destroyed the temple. The temple is the way Jews expiate guilt. They burn animals, animal sacrifice. They can't do that. The guilt has built up, and they've got this specter. A specter is haunting Israel, just like Karl Marx said. Time is running out. We have to rebuild the temple. We have to be able to expiate guilt. And if we don't do it within the next four or five years, we're going to lose that chance forever. That was the proximate cause of Operation uh, Al-Aqsa storm. It was 800 crazy Israelis, rabbis, settlers rushing into the Al-Aqsa mosque basically to destroy it so that they can rebuild the temple because the the mosque is built on the foundation of the second temple. Okay, and um so when did this kind of um this 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 belief um that in in a you know because our our understanding of things changed very suddenly but this belief of a of a of a of an ethnic group that needed to re-inhabit the uh, the the geography of uh, of Israel in order to um to 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 fulfill what to fill Jesus coming back and so on. When did this begin? This concept. Uh, if you're talking about Zionism, it began in the 19th century because that was the age of nationalism, and so the Jews at this point are in the shtetl, 
It's now the western border of Russia. It used to be the eastern border of Poland. Now it's the western border of Russia. And all these revolutionary ideas are coming into this group of people who are basically living the way they live for hundreds of years, like in the Middle Ages. And so one of the, uh, and, and they, they, they all speak Yiddish. They don't speak Russian. And Yiddish is a German dialect, so they're sensitive to all the new ideas that are coming out of Berlin now. And one of them is Jewish internationalism, and that's called communism. And that's Karl Marx and all these. That was the dominant ideology among Jews at this point. They fell for communism, hook, line, and sinker. They created terrorist groups like Narodnaya Volia, and they eventually uh, murdered the Tsar. The other alternative is Jewish nationalism. That's called Zionism. And that was kind of dormant until the middle of the 20th century. I mean, Herzl was around. He was he went to the Pope. He went to apparently two popes, and asked them. He the the, uh, the Zionists collaborated with the Nazis because they both had the same goal in mind. They wanted to get Jews out of Europe. Uh, the Zionists wanted them to come to Israel, and so it only took place. The thing that got it off the ground was the Holocaust, because now the world felt that they owed the Jews something because of their suffering and. That's, it's in my book, the book I just wrote is called The Holocaust Narrative, where they take this narrative and that becomes the basis of their power, their political power, through things like control of the information flow until the point now where you have our Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, who can't get in front of a microphone without saying, I have relatives who died in the Holocaust. This has become the mantra that basically shuts down every discussion. In Canada, I don't know whether you follow the Canada trucker thing. Okay, the truckers show up because it's COVID. They want the end of the regulations. Uh, Justin Trudeau doesn't want to negotiate with them. And so what happens? Oh, they found an anti-Semitic flyer next to a truck. Actually, the, Florida, the flyer came from Florida, but this Jewish member of parliament by the name of Yara Sachs, she starts off her discussion by saying, I have relatives who died in the Holocaust. Then she waves this flyer around, and then she says, honk, honk equals Heil Hitler. That's all a quote. Now, let's, let, assuming the guard is listening into our conversation, is, something, is there something wrong with what I just said? Can we understand the situation in Canada, for example, without bringing up these issues like Yara Sachs? I don't think we can. And so this is not about hate speech. This is about free speech. And whether we have the ability to discuss things to come to a conclusion about the way things really are rather than the way the mainstream media want us to think about them. Yes. Um, now on that, on that note, bringing it back to Ireland again, since you mentioned the Garda, we have a burn the boats wants to ask you a question and he wants to know um, the, the Northern Ireland thing that the, the Republicans in Northern Ireland, now I didn't actually know this, um, unionist communities will fly the Israeli flag, but nationalist communities will fly the Palestine flag. Um, do you think there's anything deeper to that than the obvious sort of subconscious association with each group? All right. The Protestant Reformation led naturally to Judaizing because it was a rebellion against the Catholic Church. Now, Luther's the exception to this rule, but for the most part, every single uh, Protestant is a Judaizer. And this had consequences for um, Ireland because uh, one of these Judaizers by the name of Cromwell conquered the place. 
He had he yeah. had no restraint in slaughtering the Irish people because he had a, basically a Jewish understanding of reality, and that Puritans were the children. They were the Jews. They were they were total Judaizers. They got all their ideas of their identity by reading the Old Testament, and then they applied it in a way that the Israelis applied it to, or are now applying it to Gaza. That's what happens when you become uh, a Judaizer. So you can't look at the situation. Uh, the Irish-Catholic uh, split in Ireland without understanding what a Protestant is and how, why those Protestants were Judaizers and why their Judaizing form of Christianity uh, enabled, uh, facilitated the exploitation of the native people. It's obvious. The Catholics are Amalek. Read, uh, mm -hmm. read the, the people. Read uh, Milton, John Milton, their apologist. You know the way he talks about the, uh, this this type of thing. And how do you view in that uh, in that kind of um, spectrum? How do you view the people who claim non-denominational Christian status? They're probably worse. Well, let, let's go to the uh, the United States of America. I know that situation better. The mm -hmm. the kind of the non-denominational groups wrote. They're called evangelicals here. They're not part of the mainstream. They're not Baptist, Methodist, Lutherans, Presbyterians, or Anglicans. They are the mainstream group. These grow up in reaction to their kind of uh, decadence. They're all Christian Zionists. To a man, they're all Christian Zionists because they don't have any type of uh, historical connection to the Catholic Church, which restrained the traditional groups. There was a kind of, I mean, ethnically as well. I, I, grew, I grew up in Philadelphia uh, that was ruled by a kind of wasp elite of Protestants, you know, Anglicans and Quakers, a weird combination. Uh, but they had a kind of ethnic animus against the Jews, simply on a, on a class basis. Uh, and, and that eroded politically or during the period uh, following World War II, when the whole uh, Protestant identity began to erode. It's eroding now in every Protestant country. So I've said a, a white boy is basically a Protestant who doesn't go to church anymore. Uh, my friend uh, Frodi Mitjur, the, uh, the Norwegian, woke up. He was baptized as a Lutheran in Norway, and then suddenly there's no established church, and he's got an identity crisis. And that's what happened uh, largely in the United States of America. And it was filled by this new religious movement called the evangelical movement of uh, television preachers like Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson in the 80s had a huge impact on the United States of America. And they were all Judaizers. They were all Christian Zionists. Um, so uh, Wood Floor Alchemist wants to say, shout out to E. Michael Jones, fellow Hoosier, Hoser here. Uh, just next door in Elkhart. Elkhart, okay, okay. Elkhart, Indiana, home of the RV industry in northern Indiana. Hoosier is a is the word for uh, citizen of Indiana. Some people say it means stupid person, but uh, anyway, Hoosier. That's what that word means. Okay, and what's the word that they use for? Is that, a, that for Canadians? Isn't there some similar word? That maybe the Canadians. Canuck. Canuck. Oh. That's the, the derogatory term for Canadians. Okay. Maybe here. Canadians say something like hoser or something for, I can't, I can't remember. There's some other word that sounds similar. All right. So the buzz wrecker asked me, Baron, do you feel more Catholic or Orthodox? So that's because I'm a, I'm exploring Orthodox Christianity at the moment and I'm ethnically, 
uh, Catholic Irish. But I would like to just divert that question into you and discuss maybe just briefly uh, what it is that you would find um, to be immediately incorrect or something that would that would make you t tell people to look at Catholicism rather than looking at uh, orthodoxy. Well, uh, do you speak Bulgarian? I do not. Do you speak Russian? I don't. Do you speak Serbian? I don't. Do you speak Greek? <laughs> no, I don't. Well, then I don't speak any to, language I, pertinent. I, I, how, how, how are you going to become Orthodox then if you don't speak any of those languages? These are, these are in a sense, ethnic, ethnocentric churches. I'm not denying that they are apostolic churches, but I'm saying in terms of evangelization, they are, they are limited. They're limited. I, I, I met a group of uh, Bulgarian Orthodox. They're living on an island off the coast of Alaska, and they came to visit me. And it's, you know, they're Italians, they're Irish, and they invite me to their conference. And it's basically, we go down to Indianapolis, there's the National Conference of the Bulgarian Orthodox. And it's obvious there are two groups here. You either spoke, speak Bulgarian or you don't speak Bulgarian. And if you don't speak Bulgarian, you, you know, you're not really part of the group. That's the trouble when you join these ethnocentric churches. You, you will miss you will miss the universality of the Catholic Church if you do that. And on top of that, it's not your ethnicity. Your ethnicity is Irish. And everybody feels this way now because the church, Catholic Church is in such a wretched state or other, but that won't last forever. You just have to take these considerations into account before you make a move like that. And if they ask you to get baptized again, you will be uh, in trouble theologically and morally with, with God if you do that. Well, I do know that they don't do that. Um... As somebody I know uh, joined the Russian Orthodox Church in Dublin, and uh, he, I think he wanted to get baptized, but he said there was no need because he had been baptized Catholic. Well, as a I child. know I know Catholics who have decided to join Orthodox denominations, and they they were from, told they have to be rebaptized, which hmm. doesn't speak highly of their view of uh, of the Catholic Church. Interesting, but I suppose it does about the specific church that my friends in. If if they said no, 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 you're fine if you if you were baptized Catholic. What do you think about that? I well, yes you are you can, uh, we accept the, the Protestant baptisms are valid so if Protestant baptisms are valid if they use the proper form you have to baptize with water and you have to say in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy the Holy Spirit uh, if that's that is a valid baptism and the Church Catholic Church accepts those accept those baptisms as valid okay um the Bible doesn't teach... Okay, I've got a good few questions for you. The Bible doesn't teach that the Jays are the chosen people. Christian Zionism just started in the past few hundred years. Yes. Um, not true. Well, not true. Read the Gospel of St. John if you want a, a different point of view. When he Jesus confronts the Jews and they are talking about their DNA. This is not... Zionism is a political uh, reworking of uh, themes that come from the Bible, but that stance of God's chosen people goes all the way back to. Okay, to so Moses. in response to your, in response to your issue with uh, with orthodoxy, Daniel Flares wants to know: Do you speak Latin? No, I don't speak Latin. Uh, so I'm at a, whenever I go to Latin America, I don't know what to say. <laughs> okay. Um, how do we counter Christian Zionist evangelicals? And he yeah, has to say uh, it's pretty much there's one book. It's called the Schofield Bible. Uh, this uh, it was created by a Jew, 
Louis Untermeyer didn't write it, but uh, didn't write the notes either. But he saw that Oxford University Press would publish this. Once you had a prestigious press behind that, lots of uh, denominations began using the Schofield Bible, which has all of this weird dispensationalist theology in it uh, that has led to the spread of Christian Zionism among the evangelicals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tinsel TQ asked something similar earlier, um, which is, yeah, how do you how do you try to verbally counter Christian Zionists in conversation was his question. So similar question. Um, well, well, I, I mean, I've... I've I mean, you can go to a place like Oklahoma. I have ch- uh, uh, children living in Oklahoma, and they are anti-abortion, and they're pro-Zionist. And I'm saying, well, I begin the conversation. I said, well, do you know that abortion is a fundamental Jewish value? Do you know that Zionists are Jews? I mean, not all Zionists, but I mean, it's basically a Jewish political movement. How do you square that? And that gets mm-hmm. the thinking process going. Uh, that's a discussion that needs to happen now. Yeah, I just highlighted what uh, Well Manuel uh, Well Manuel said underneath because that's exactly how I'm feeling about it. Um, I am not any kind of representative of Orthodoxy or Catholicism, so I'm in no position to uh, to start arguing about that topic. Um, so, uh, just some people in the chat uh, didn't like your, your 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 specific answer to why one shouldn't be uh, Orthodox. Um, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just saying that there, these are traditional churches, okay? That Russia is a Christian country because of Russian Orthodoxy. It's a national church. That's not what Catholicism is. If you go to the, uh, the, the, the Church of the Spilled Blood in St. Petersburg, you will see plaques all around the church announcing basically that this is the year that Russia conquered Kazakhstan and this is the year we conquered Uzbekistan and so on and so forth. That's, that's a particular kind of church that I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see any easy entry into a church like that if you're Irish. I, I just think it's, it's, it's so alien to the way you've been raised. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to abandon Catholicism? Catholicism is an apostolic church. If they want to pull that on you, I just it is it is not it is like I've I've spoken at a conference here uh, of young Orthodox believers. I'm the only Catholic at the conference. You know, they just like what I have to say about the culture, I guess. And I gave a talk on art, and I talked about Giotto and breaking with Greek models, uh, which is the icon. In other words, he, it was a breakthrough in painting that Vasari said he had to break with the Greek models. I said there's a daring to the Catholic Church that doesn't exist in these, in these Orthodox churches, even though I, they are apostolic churches. I'm not denying that. There is a daring that exists in Catholicism that doesn't exist there. That's all I have to say. Mm-hmm. So... Um... Dr. Crispy Rothschild asked, can Dr. Jones speak on Sabbatean Frankists? Now, that's a it's, big diversion. It's, no, it's a, it's a really, com- the Frankist whole movement is really complicated and it's really controversial uh, back and forth. Uh, the best way into it is to talk about Shabbatai Zivi. That's what Shabbatia means. And uh, that's complicated too because of the false conversions. But there's a chapter on Shabbatai Zivi in the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, uh, 
uh, it's an important chapter. There are some people who say the Frankists are uh, diabolical. There's some people who say the only reason they're saying that is because the Jews don't like them because they're sincere Christians and so on and so forth. But the best introduction would be to read the chapter on Shabbatai Zevi in the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. And do you have any words for the Christians currently in Israel to get back to that topic, I suppose? Um, what, 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 would you, what would you say to them? Should they flee? No, I'm saying nobody, nobody should flee. And you should, at some points in history, certain groups have to suffer. And the Christians are being persecuted by these Jewish revolutionaries in Israel at the time. And all I can say is that, you know, God allows suffering for a time and then uh, they're not there anymore. And so I'm just saying to don't leave, just to hang on, hold on, on tight. I did something similar in the book that I just wrote called The Holocaust Narrative. I talked about Catholic priest in Dachau, concentration camp, and the Father Lenz, who was the, one of those priests, said, by August of 1942, we were, we were all going to die, either from starvation or from disease. And at that point, God heard our prayer. August 15th, the, week, the day of the Assumption, God heard our prayer, and on that day, a directive came from Berlin telling the sadistic guards at this camp, you can't, you have to give these people food, they're here to work. And he said, basically, we were there for a time. God allows suffering for a time. Suffering has purpose, but it doesn't go on forever. And I think that uh, that's exactly the specter that's haunting Israel right now. I think they're all going to fear they're going to go out of existence. And I'm, so that's what I'm saying. I think that the Christians there, we know you're being persecuted, but if you hang on, I think God has a, a reason for your persecution, and you will find it out sooner or later. Okay. What's your views on... Um... On a, I'm just going through all these questions that I'm seeing pop up. What uh, what um, what what are your views on the correct way to live as a Christian? Oh, by the moral law, there's no social progress mm -hmm. outside the moral law. So that's simple, okay? So that means uh, no sex outside of marriage. You should, when you reach your 20s, the most important thing you need to do is find a spouse. And then uh, once you're married, uh, you create a family by being open to the procreative nature of sexuality. And then you will have a successful life. So that's simple, right? So just be rational. Well, it's not that simple because we are, are wounded in our nature by original sin. And we tend to like irrationality. And the only corrective for that is the grace of God through the sacraments of the Catholic Church. Is that clear? Is there is there something I left out there? If so, let me know, and I'll try and fill it in. No, that's pretty clear. But um, smaller uh, sort of de decisions that you make in your life, uh, directions that you could go with things. Um, you know, there are, there are times where you find yourself feeling that you could uh, that you could do more, that you could do more good, maybe in the world. But you're uh, you're but maybe things are going very well in your life. Um, is there, a, is there a moral duty there to do more when you can do more? Sure. If you have, uh, what to, so the rich, uh, the young man came to, rich young man came to Jesus Christ and said, what must I do to be saved? He said, you have to follow the, the, the commandments. And he said, I already do that. And then he said, well, sell everything and give it to the poor. 
Well, at that point, he went away sad uh, because that's a really strong thing. Now, that is called the evangelical councils. And if you're called to be a priest or a religious, that's what you got to do. Okay, but there's a, a, another way there that I am just kind of discovering myself, and is that you have a, a right, uh, you, you, you need certain amount of money to survive. And you can, so what you need, especially if you have a family, is you have to create stability, which means that your children can depend on you to, you know, have something to eat every day and a, a house over their head and no disruption. And that's your duty as a father, to provide for them. But if you have a surplus, you, you in a sense, owe that to the poor. And so you should start giving that surplus to the poor rather than buying that Corvette, that sports car that you really like. These are luxuries. You have to mm -hmm. be able to distinguish between necessities and luxuries. And once the necessities are taken care of, and I'm, I'm taking that in a very liberal sense, you have to have stability in your life and there has to that's why you need money that's why married people have to have money they cannot take a vow of poverty they have to have money you have to have that stability once you have that stability then you should share your wealth with the poor and that's i think the the message of the the man the rich man who had two had a barn had a great harvest he said i'm going to build another barn and god took him that night because what he should have done is share his surplus with the poor rather than spending it on luxuries or a, a more comfortable life. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, yeah, so what about things like um, the belief? Some people will have the belief that, um, that you can, um, you'll get, got, you can, you know, we, we take we take slogans like um, you, you shall know them by their fruit and things like that, and that you can judge maybe how good a man is by how successful he is or by how well things are going for him and things like that. Um, where do we draw? Obviously, you, I, I'm presuming you don't agree with that. But well, that's, um, that's, that's the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel, exactly. That's that. You go to California, you've got preachers who will preach the prosperity prosperity gospel. And it's aimed right now at Mexicans. And I remember meeting a Mexican, uh, Mexican-American now in California, and he said to me, you see that BMW? God wanted me to have that BMW. And he picked that up in his prosperity church. So, no, I'm not talking, when I'm talking about a successful life, I'm not talking about uh, being rich or having lots of possessions. That's not what I mean by a successful life. I mean a successful life is you have the stability of your family, which will allow you to have some type of independence so that someone can't threaten your job because you're not uh, using the right pronoun or something like that, you know, some type of independence that will allow for a successful life and you'll raise your children and you'll die and go to heaven. Yes. Um, so why are Protestants so psyoped by Zionism and dispensationalism? It's the Schofield Bible. It's that simple. Okay. Um, Declan is a new member. Thank you very much, Declan. Um, so, okay, Baron. Doctor, several people want to know Dr. Jones's thoughts on modern influence of the Sabbath. Okay, so the modern influence. They, they wanted you to get more into the modern influence of the Sabbatean Frankists. And what 
extent you think there is that modern influence? I, I can't answer that. I don't know. I don't know. You don't know. I don't know if there's any. We're talking about the, an 18th century movement that traces itself back to Shabbat Zivi, but after that, I'm 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 lost. I don't know if there are any influences now. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, it's not something I know anything about. So I'm just reading it, and there's a lot of people mentioning it again since they're tall chatting about it. But okay, um, surprised it's not called the Steinberg Bible. Okay, um, so um, your 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 newest book that's coming out is um, Holocaust, the Holocaust narrative, the Holocaust narrative. Um, so I've seen a few people in the uh, in the chat mentioning that uh, that they're looking forward to reading it um, and that they're excited about it. Um, with regards to your work, um, which books do you do you recommend to people who maybe never haven't read any of your books? Where should someone start? Yeah, I know. That's a good question. It depends on your interest. It depends on your interest. The, the, the book, one book that made a big impact was uh, Libido Dominandi about sexual liberation and political control. It made a big impact at the time around 2019 when the, the Groiper generation kind of woke up and realized that they were completely slaves of their passions because they were addicted to pornography. So that might help you in that regard. Uh, the others, you know, it just depends on what you're into. I did just did a book on art. Are you interested in beauty? Then read The Dangers of Beauty. If you want to, I was very interested in the concept of the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Listening to your interviews today, uh, that certainly struck me as something that I I'm definitely going to have to check out. But uh, I hear it's 1,200 pages or something that's, like that. That's not true. That, that is completely false. It is 1,800 <laughs> pages long. <laughs> The three it's volumes, longer three, every time I hear about it. Three, well, that's what happens when you bring out a second edition. You realize that there are things that I should have talked about the first edition. So now, but don't like, why are you, what are you afraid of? You know, it's, it's, it's only oh. one, one page at a time. You're, you're wasting your time watching television or going on Twitter anyway. So uh, get it, get it. This is the education you'll never get in at the university anymore. And you'll get it for a fraction of the cost. So, you know, buy a copy. This is the story of human history. This I said before, it's the battle between Logos and anti-Logos. And now, then you'll be able to understand world politics better because it's still going on. It's going on in Gaza as we speak. It's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> um, yeah, I guess I'm going to have to go out and buy it straight away. So it's 1,800 now. So this is a major, this three, is a major Three work. volumes, three <laughs> volumes. Okay. Okay. And um, so could you explain for the listeners then how you, uh, how it applies specific, you know, just in short, how it applies to what's going on in the Middle East right now in Israel right now? Well, yeah, I mean, I've, I've already talked about it, you know, so you've, you have the, let's start from the, uh, the end. Why are these people trying to uh, take over the Alaska mosque? Why are the Israelis so obsessed about this mosque? What's the big deal here? Well, it's built on the foundation of the temple. Okay, so what? Yeah. So what? What's what's the big deal about the temple? Well, if you don't have a temple, you can't expiate sin. Well, what happened? Well, it was uh, the Jesus Christ warned them. He warned the Jews 
If you don't listen to me, something bad is going to happen. 30 years after the crucifixion, the temple was destroyed, which meant they have no, there's no religion anymore, you know, which means that the guilt is building up, which means that you have, uh, you can either repent or you can double down. And they had doubled down. I said okay. they chose Barabbas. What do you mean Barabbas? Why did they choose Barabbas? Because they were revolutionaries in rebellion against the Logos incarnate. That's what they are to this day. And that's what that book is about throughout human history, how they've consistently sided with the overthrow of the social order, which is what determines them as revolutionaries. Okay. Um, just looking for more questions. No, okay. So there's obviously... Um, to all the people, there's a lot of people who want me to uh, to ask how, ask you about how your relationship is with uh, with Owen Benjamin these days. Ever since the uh, the intervention a few years ago, um, yeah, I so. think we I think we're we're on good terms now. I mean, I I uh, I, I thought uh, I had a duty to uh, he was he was engaging in all he's got, he's got no control whatsoever over what he says. Okay, so he's engaging in all kinds of blasphemous statements about homosexuality and the holy trinity and he he uh, he uh, it was appalling and so a bunch of people got together it wasn't just me it was uh, rachel fulton brown and milo and uh, patrick coffin and we decided to follow the gospel and you know if your brother sins against you 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 uh, engage in fraternal correction so they attempted fraternal correction uh, seemed to be going okay and then he blew up at, at me and said stuff about me and doesn't matter it doesn't matter i think he got over it uh, i haven't heard him saying this type of stuff anymore so that's good so maybe he took it to heart but i mean if that's what you're talking about i think it's over as far as i'm concerned it's over i think it's over from his point of view too okay um my name is michael jones i said owen's show a few years ago great guy seat of david okay well that's been fascinating guys if you've got any other questions before i go um Now's the time. Um, now, isn't that kind of a blind spot? Not looking up. Okay, so yeah, if you've got anything else you'd like to ask before you go, and uh, if you'd like to, to to mention anything before you go, let's um, talk about um, your stream, talk about your books, uh, talk okay, about your website. Okay, you can get the latest book, uh, The Holocaust Narrative. It's a lot of people, it's really selling better than any book I've ever done before. I think largely because of the circumstances where we have this crisis in the Middle East and suddenly people, every, every person who is involved in justifying a war crime on the part of the Israelis invariably invokes the Holocaust. So it's still alive now. Nobody knows, nobody knows what's, what's, uh, what's going, what's going on. Uh, the, this book will explain where that came from, how it got weaponized and how to defuse it. So you go to fidelitypress.org and you can order a copy. Brilliant. Okay, I'll be ordering myself. Um I might talk about uh, I might talk about what I what, what I learned from my reading of your uh, of your books over the next while on my stream. You'd be okay with that, would you? I'd be happy. Be happy to. <laughs> You'd anytime. be happy with that. Yeah. I'm fiercely uh, I'm fiercely uneducated, but uh, on on matters theological, but I'm I'm learning fast, and I'm 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 catching up with a kind of a. I was I was raised uh, raised atheistic and or agnostic, and uh, I only really discovered um, religiosity Christianity at all properly in my thirties. So it's been a it's been a wild ride the last few years. That's good. That's good. 
you're on the right track. So, you know, that's good. What can I say? Yeah. God has a plan. <laughs> Your plan is different than my plan, but God's has a plan for everyone. Yeah, it's just, it's just a, it's a very kind of a, it's, it's been a great experience for me because, you know, I'm maybe, I'm maybe six years into a, not being an atheist or not being agnostic and never having been told really anything religious um, for most of my life. And I find myself streaming with E. Michael Jones, you know, so um, <laughs> I'm just, uh, I'm just uh, flying. Good. Um, Good. So uh, thank you very much for your time. I really, really do appreciate it. Um, Good. And, uh, I enjoyed our um, conversation. And if you want to continue it, uh, just let me know and we'll do it again. Brilliant. That'd be wonderful. All right, guys. Thank you very much for coming. Um, and I will be back probably on Tuesday if I keep going with my schedule. Once again, thank you to all the new members. Thank you for all the super chats. I really appreciate them. And uh, yeah, thanks everybody for coming. Bye-bye. Oh, before I go, that would have been the end. I want you to say one thing for me. One of my moderators is getting married on the 20th of January, and he's a huge fan of yours. So I just want, I was hoping you could say congratulations on your wedding. Uh, congratulations on your wedding, Shane and, Sh and Shannon. Congratulations on your wedding, Shane and Shaman. Good, good move. It's the right move to make. Brilliant. All right, guys. See you later.